Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 7 of Becoming. I'm Katherine Tang, and for this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to Dan Hendry, who is probably best known for his hand in changing the transit culture here in Kingston. Listen in as Dan and I chat about sustainability, focusing on the positive, and going to school in Sweden. All right, so Dan, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so to get started, could you tell us who you are and what you do? For sure. Uh, my name is Dan Hendry. I work here at Limestone School Board as the Sustainable Initiatives Coordinator. I also work at the college at St. Lawrence College in Kingston as the Manager of Community-Based Learning and Innovation. It seems that everything you do is connected in some way to sustainability and social innovation. Have these always been passions of yours? I think so. I mean, it really it came down to one slide in uh, after in my four year business degree I did, um, and it just kind of it was around sustainability and business, uh, and that really changed. Uh, I think my life and where I decided to go and what I decided to do. I've always been interested in people and community. Um, and working with people, uh, but just as for the, the wording of sustainability and social innovation has kind of come to me, I guess, now after everything I've studied and, and worked on and participated in. And when you say sustainability, I know people automatically think environment, but is that your definition as well of sustainability? Yeah, the true definition of sustainability, I and mean, it's non-human human centric, right? So mm-hmm. uh, I did my master's in Sweden, uh, and it was really around the biosphere and, and how we as humans uh, can live within it. At the end of the day, we need clean air, clean water, and, and a system to provide that to us. Um, so with 7.6 billion people on earth, more and more demands and pressures, our, our ecosystem um, that we belong to uh, is getting more fragile. It's environmental, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's also not separate from you know the economy and, and our society that lives within that environment. So I know we're going to talk a little bit about Sweden later, um, but if we think back to when you were younger, what were you like? Like, what, Who did you think you would be growing up? Uh, well, I could tell you that when I was, I think, five or six, I wanted to be a dinosaur bone digger upper is what I had said. Nice. Uh, I was always interested <laughs> in kind of anthropology, uh, paleontology and, and that type of thing, mostly probably, you know, romanticized by Nina Jones. But history was also, also something that I, I loved. Um, it's definitely, you know, in the traditional school system, it's not something I stayed on to. I mm-hmm. took courses, but I just didn't, uh, I didn't stick with that. Um, so, um, you know, as a kid that was outside a lot, played a lot of hockey, had a lot of uh, friends, always rode hockey in front of, in our small community, a lot of times in forests and fields and streams uh, out with my friends on my bike. Um, you know, fairly a wild child, I would say, in that way. Grew up in a smaller town and, and quite literally and cliche, you know, came back home when the you know the the street lights came on and the and the and the light and the and the sun went down. Mm-hmm. Um, did you take public transit growing up? I didn't grow up in Kingston, so I grew up in Lindsay, Ontario. Okay, uh, it's about twenty thousand people. I did take the bus sometimes, but uh, quite real. You know, it was it was quicker for me to walk to the mall in forty five minutes than quite hit that bus, which would take yeah. an hour. <laughs> so again, a smaller community. Um, with with definitely not the same uh, public transit infrastructure that we have here in Kingston or other communities. Mm-hmm. So I guess um, growing up, you know, interested in paleontology and then also in history, what did your educational path look like? I went to uh, OAC in Ontario when, when it was there. I didn't feel like I was bound for university right away. It was not calling me and mostly not because I, you know, I got okay grades in OAC, but I just didn't know what to commit to for four years with all that big expense. And I had to bear most of that. 
Um, so I did take a college diploma um, at Seneca College in Toronto, uh, in international business. And, you know, at 18, uh, from a small town, quite frankly, like international business, it wasn't well researched to me. It was, well, I want to travel and business sounds cool. You know, um, I got there and I, I can finish whatever I get into for the most part. Um, so I finished those two years. Um, and luckily at the time, um, well, I looked into it more and more and not sure what to do. And there was a bridge program to a university in Victoria called Royal Roads University, um, where they took my credits um, and, you know, I could finish it in a couple of years, um, my a degree in a commerce degree in entrepreneurial management. Um, so that's kind of, that was like the traditional, you know, traditional, non-traditional. Um, I was lucky that there was that bridge. I, I then went away from, you know, from, from Lindsay to Toronto to Victoria. Um, and I mean, I really grew out there. I found, I mean, you don't have anyone to shop for you. Um, right. Like you're really all those small things that you know, kind of make being an adult, um, you know, yeah, that seems like a really interesting choice to do international business. Well, that's a, the, <laughs> coming. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I mean, what when when I got in there, and there's a lot of very useful things that I that I definitely became me. So tell me about Sweden. Sweden, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I don't know anything really about Sweden other than well, they, buy a lot of furniture from a large yeah. organization. That yeah, made. no. Well, and and so Sweden actually. So before Sweden, I don't know if I'd told you this but i actually spent two years teaching english in korea oh um, i was wondering where that that came in i knew you did but then yeah. i wasn't sure where well before and after sweden so i kind of went there for two years uh and then still didn't know what i wanted to do but i just remember that one slide that some mm -hmm. one professor put up in my in victoria so it was a i went to a, a studied in sweden it was a year-long master's program um in at blecking institute of technology and then it was a master's in strategic leadership towards sustainability um, I'd say it was, I mean, it was definitely life-changing uh, around, you know, where we fit into the, in sustainability, you know, it's, it gives a very clear definition because it's non-human centric. There's certain things we just can't do systemically uh, in over time in the biosphere um, while undermining the biosphere itself, like stripping away, you know, trees and, and, and life, right? Like quite frankly, mm -hmm. you read all the headlines, it's a very uh, complex system and it needs, it needs this robustness. And that's just something I'm always worried about. But yeah, Sweden was, it was amazing. I mean, there were about 50 people there um, in my program. Uh, I would I think I could be wrong, but I think it was about 17 different nationalities wow. so, to study such a complex topic at a high level. And not just that, like I'm, I'm more of that business side and communicator, but I mean, because it was more of a general sustainability degree, you had artists in it, you had engineers, you had people young and old from, you know, 17 different countries, I think around there. So it added just a very, very unique learning environment for me, I think. And it added uh, just, I mean, I couldn't imagine it just, it was so neat to study this very complex topic with all these people in a, in a rather safe environment. Like you got to learn from others, but also, um, yeah, it just build that international kind of perspective on, on some of these complex issues and to study in Sweden too, people say why, and well, I was lucky to get accepted, but, uh, it was also, why not, you know, study in a country that actually is closer to living sustainability than anywhere else as a, as a, as a systems level, like as like their culture, you know, it's a, it's something like Swedes are very, it's a very progressive um, country when it comes to, you know, in sustainability. And I want to go somewhere where, you know, not that I could get in, but if I, you know, Oxford or Yale, you know, I don't think I, I had the marks for that, but at the same time, you, you might be studying something as complex as sustainability, but in systems that are, are far from sustainable. So I want to mm -hmm. go somewhere to, that I could live and breathe it more than just, more than just, uh, just in the books and in the conversations um, in, in my classroom. I love that. And I remember actually talking to um, 
a young person who had done some some exchange programs and he was saying that was actually the biggest thing for him was to be able to get outside of North America and to see you know how different different cultures different countries approach things um, and to get some of their, their perspective as well yeah, I think it's very valuable um, all right so after your master's you went back to teaching in Korea yeah I went back there I mean it was kind of what I was used to I, I need to save some more money and it was again just like anything it's you kind of it was something I knew I could do. I also had friends still in Korea. Um, and when it wasn't in Korea, you got to, you know, travel and see. And it was something I just became for, familiar with, but also comfortable with, even though I was a foreigner. Um, but it, yeah, I'd been there for another year and a bit, maybe close, just under two years. And I kind of, it kind of got to a point where I'm like, well, I got to, yeah, I know it's going to take building up, um, but I want to start working in the field that, that I'm passionate for and trained in. And so what brought you back to Kingston or back to Canada, I guess? Um, well, I have a kind of funny story about this and something that I, I tell a lot of students that I work with uh, at the college level anyway, because a lot of them, you know, they're in a two-year, three-year, maybe four-year, a one-year certificate, and then they're going into the workforce. And, you know, it's a very vulnerable time. It's hard. And um, so when I was uh, in, I went, actually, I came back, uh, I went to Mount Everest Base Camp on the Tibetan side, um, and I'd spent most of my money doing this. So if you can imagine, just, it was quite expensive and I'd spent a lot of savings, but I, when I was there, I wanted to do it. Uh, luckily I had some support, you know, with my family. And so I came back and my parents looked at me and said, well, how much money did you save Daniel? And I said, uh, $500. So it wasn't long before that was gone. And I was now relying on them and, and the jobs, part-time jobs I could get while I came back. Um, so my first job interview, actually I had a job interview in Ottawa for the natural step. Um, and this is actually the not-for-profit, the NGO that my, that, that the founder of the, the program I studied in Sweden, he was the founder of this not NGO. And, and I have a letter of reference from him. Um, I worked directly mm-hmm. under him. So I thought kind of, oh, here we go. So right off. And what was it called, sorry? Uh, the Natural Step. So okay. the Natural Step is an NGO uh, that promotes sustainability across the globe. And there's an office in Ottawa. So I got this, this, and I have a letter. Of, it's basically the David Suzuki of, of Sweden, right? So I'm, okay, yeah. I have this letter of recommendation from this guy. And and at the time it was, you know, I was good, good enough with the social media. I mean, it was, you know, it was 10 plus 12 years ago now. So it was a little different game, but I was, you know, very confident, I think, and I could pick it up and I was good enough with computers. And so I had this job interview and I had this letter from the guy that founded the organization. And uh, as I said, I had just gone to Everest, not just to say that, but I'd spent all my money. So my mom had bought me a new shirt. Um, and so I had this panel interview and I thought I was doing okay. Um, I walked out. I didn't feel that great about myself. Um, just like an interview, you're kind of thinking how you could have said it better, or, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I looked down and I saw on the front of my shirt, I had left the price tag hanging off the oh, no. shirt <laughs> my whole time. Um, but you know what? And, and so that's kind of, that's where I went right when I came back. Um, and, you know, I'm announced to me, like, you don't know where it's going to lead you. So I, I kind of always give myself a couple of days of sorrow and then just get back at it because yeah. that's how I kind of I have to go in life. And, you know, I look back and I tell students, you know, there's going to be times where that you think you've been defeated and, and that, and it, quite frankly, that you, you, you were, you were in some ways, right? Like it was what you anticipated and wanted and strive for and you didn't get it, but, but never, never, um, like let that's you, defeat is when you pause and stop right so and what I mean by this is like I wouldn't I love the jobs I work here in Kingston and all the stuff I've been able to participate in and the people I've got to work with and I wouldn't have met my wife or you know have my child or or my dog or my cat or be close to my family if I if I got that job in Ottawa my life would Mm. look completely different so and maybe you know that that could be a good or bad thing right but I love where I am 
Um, and it's because of all those moments that, that, that got me here. And that was one of them. So yeah, I definitely came back. And from that, I lived on a, a floor in my brother's uh, apartment for nine to 10 months, uh, quite frankly, living under a desk in the living room, um, working $12 an hour job um, in sustainability though, before, you know, I had some opportunities that I kind of, I, I took advantage of and, and I got involved, you know, on lots of committees and, and worked for the city with Sustainable Kingston and, and the school board and different projects. And, you know, though I, nothing is completely secured even now, I still feel um, I'm very proud of what I've been able to accomplish. And so I definitely want to talk about some of the work you've done in town, but I, I want to come back to this Mount Everest base camp. What did that look like? How long did you do that for? Uh, it was, it was actually, so it was through a, it was through a tour company. I mean, at that point too, just cost wise and just time wise. So a friend of mine who was from England originally, he was teaching in Korea as well. Um, we, we went to Nepal, Kathmandu, uh, met up with our tour, uh, flew into Lhasa and Tibet and then went overland from Tibet to Lhasa to, uh, via bus like a small bus um via back to Kathmandu so basically we got there and then um there's there's kind of a yurt settlement of people that that's where you can stay near the base camp and then mm -hmm. you get up in the morning and you walk up uh, I mean the the Kathmandu side or there's different ways to do it where there's, it's a lot more extensive you know extensive um we had a kind of a day walk a half a day walk to get there and then come back but the thing is too you're so high up altitude wise um, it, it looks like you're walking flat and you pretty much are, but it's, it's very difficult because um, yeah. there's so much less oxygen. In fact, there was one girl on the tour that, you know, spent all this money and got to the point where she had to walk and she just couldn't physically do it. Even though it felt flat, you're just, you're, it's very tough on your body. So um, yeah, kind of did that and then came back to Kathmandu, came back to Korea for a couple, I think several days. And then I came back to Canada and that was, you know, that was well a decade ago now. Wow. Um, so let's talk a bit about the work that you've done in town. What are some of the things you've been involved in? Um, well, quite a bit. I, well, I mean, I look back now um, <laughs> and, and, you know, things from helping, you know, early on helping uh, build the organization Sustainable Kingston to when I worked for the city, helping build with the Climate Action Plan or the Commuter Challenge. Um, those are with the city uh, and in the community as well. Um, with the school board, I mean, there's lots. Um, I, we have 56 sites here at Limestone and I, I've got to work on a lot of projects between these systems, anything from securing the, uh, the, the waste service provider with actual weights and helping work to reduce waste and recycling in schools to, um, and we just finished a system-wide earth hour during the Friday before the real earth hour. And, you know, I'm actually tabulating all the reports right now to show and get to, into teachers' hands to show the difference that we made. And it's quite substantial when things add up. Um, but I'd say like what I'm known for a bit more is definitely the work of I've worked in and, and put into uh, what we've done with youth programming and public transportation. We've uh, we've transformed um, our system uh, and we're, we're known as a national example of uh, success. In fact, the transit system in Kingston has won awards and many municipalities have actually reached out to Dan about using Kingston as a case study. The, the culture of, of transit has changed a lot in the last, you know, five, five or 10 years. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing with 
with high schoolers and, and younger yep. um, to change transit culture. I, I always do tell people this is a part of the story, right? And this is what I've been involved in. Mm -hmm. um, so I can tell it inside and out. But, you know, transit, you know, there's been tremendous support by council, a really good aggressive master plan with infrastructure upgrades and the express bus routes and transpass programs for employers. So programs for employers to get employees on the bus. Like there's a lot of good things transit's been doing, really good things. Uh, but I can speak to the youth thing that kind of came about. It all really started back in 2012 when the city of Kingston, uh, the council at the time, decided to give grade 9s free bus access. So again, it, it's not like transit was always used in our system. And, and this isn't to replace yellow buses, keep in mind, right? It was just mm -hmm, an opportunity. Mm -hmm. So when I saw that, Brenda Hunter was the director at the time here at Limestone, and I went to her directly and said, listen, we have to teach we have to teach them. So I saw this opportunity. I wrote a grant for the United Way to help with some funding, and we got it for orientation in that first year. Several schools, I think it was QCVI and Bay Ridge at the time, I, I took them down to City Hall, took the kids down to City Hall to get their bus passes. Because though council had said that this was going to how we could give it free, um, there weren't all the, like we had to create all the, the, the ways to get it done. Like how mm -hmm. do you, how do you get a 14 year old a bus pass if they have to show their ID and they need their itinerary? And, and this all made sense from the city side, but from our side, you know, kids don't always get their, they don't even get student cards all the time. It costs money. Um, they, they lose their, their itineraries, I find, or they you know, that's one less stress you want to put on the an office admin in the first week of September. Now in our communities, uh, grade 9, 10, 11, 12 have access. So kind of every year they kind of came online and the school board chips a bit of money in for that. But what we've done to alleviate a lot of stress on the system is in the first week of September, make sure that I'm there with a bus to teach the grade 9. So we do orientation mm -hmm. with all the grade 9s. Um, so I'm taking them off in groups of, you know, 12 or 40, 40 or so. Uh, at the same time, transit sets up a booth there um, and they get their bus passes on site. So the beauty of doing it on site is that you don't have to have, you know, you know, if the teacher comes down with a grade nine class and the kids are signed off and their parents have, you know, said yes to it, um, they can get it because we know they're in grade nine. Dan also talked about how this is normalized taking the bus for a lot of students. It's kind of ingrained in our culture that, you know, it's been marketed to us that, you know, the freedom come, freedom comes with the automobile and automobile is 16. So, um, so this is when they're 14 and they're, they're getting a taste of some freedom, you know, and, and confidence and responsibility. And um, so they have access to these bus passes the first year. So then grade in 2012, the first year, there are about 28,000 rides just by grade nines. And then, like I'd said, now we have nine, 10, 11, 12. So, you know, if you think about cohort wise, you're like, okay, well, 28,000 times four, you know, nine, 10, 11, 12, add in some responsibility, maybe 150,000 rides a year. Well, mm -hmm. consistently year after year, since we've had 9, 10, 11, 12 and taught grade nines and got everyone the bus passes that wanted it, there's been close to 600,000 rides each year. So Just by high schoolers. Yep. Um, That's it, amazing. It is crazy. It's amazing. <laughs> and it's, it's, I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're a teacher and working in the mm -hmm. system. I think what, what, what gets me is when I get out to the schools more and more, cause I don't always get to go be involved in the school. I'm always I'm more of a system level, but when I'm there, I've talked to people and principals about how much it's changed their culture. Um, you know, whether that students being able to stay a bit later and participate, uh, leading to social equity within the system a bit more, because, you know, if you, if you couldn't, if nobody could get you and you need to take your yellow bus home, you have to take your yellow bus home. Right. Um, mm -hmm. but also just what it's done for, you know, dual credit or cooperative education or just getting to school, quite frankly, because sometimes, um, you know, it might be a quickie, it just depends where you live. It might be faster to jump on transit than it is uh, a yellow bus. And, um, again, they both serve their functions and, and this transit wasn't about taking over or changing the yellow bus stuff. It was really about enabling students and giving them freedom. Um, 
about you know six hundred. Well, there's six hundred thousand rides. Roughly three hundred thousand of those rides are are non before and after school. So kind of deemed Monday through Friday, seven to nine to three to five. These are rides that are actually you know, in the evenings during the day, getting them to maybe do a credit co-op volunteering jobs, like quite frankly, right? Like, um, or on the weekends. So it's a, it's doing a lot for, for, for these, for students and getting them around and, and it's free for them. Um, what's really neat though, if I can kind of, going to show you where it snowballed into was, yeah. um, so in 2007 or in January 1st, 2017, transit changed their fare structure. And this is, I think, really cool. So what it did was it noticed transit noticed that there wasn't a lot of money after, you know, after come after the high school bus program coming in off of children, right? Like, because mm -hmm. so, and the money part, I can talk all about that, but really the, you know, the high school ride, because the school board's chipping in a bit, um, and because the, the, the high school rides actually in Ontario, the gas tax, there's about 50 cents from what I know, um, per ride. Um, so because there's 600,000 more rides, that's giving transit close to $300,000, um, in revenue based upon mm. this program. So it's a, you know, to offset some of the costs that would have been made for people that would have purchased the passes. Now there's just way more people using it. So what was cool on January 1st was tra transit changed their fare structure because there was so little coming in from kids. And I hate the word free because it's not, it's not about free. It was about training and getting new people on the bus, right? So if you have a couple kids, you're an adult, why worry about how much, you know, five-year-old Johnny or Susie is going to cost, right? Um, why not just me pay the three bucks and them come on free? And so that's what mm -hmm. transit did. So really between zero to 14 and the high school program under 18 could, depending on, you know, if they're in high school or not, ride for free. Two cool things when they change that fare structure is one, um, they, they, they created a, a youth category. I believe it's 17 to 24. I could be wrong, but it's 17 or 18 to 24. And what this shows, and, and it's starting to show a bit, is that after they use it in high school and then when they go into the workplace, they're starting to buy it. And so that's a really important piece of this program is that you're training a, a culture that feels comfortable in transit. And I think it also changes, um, it changes even the conversation. I know like I, for the last few years, I've taught grade seven and I have students who take the bus to and from school and they after school, they hop on the bus to get to the mall or they go elsewhere and then they get their, their friends on as well. Exactly. And it really creates this culture where going on the bus is a completely um, normal, accepted thing and, and kids are comfortable. And I think you talked about this a little bit earlier as well as just training people to use a bus. Because if you don't, if you've never been on the bus, it can be a little, you know, a little bit scary. You don't know where, how to stop the bus when you need to get off. Like you don't know, you know, where the stops are. There There is an etiquette around it that people don't always know. 100%. A hundred percent. And you have to, I mean, when was the last time you did something, um, you know, that there's somebody, you know, that, that someone didn't show you or teach you and how, how much, how nerve wracking is it? Right. Just, and especially when people are looking at you and like, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, it's, it's a very social, it's a, it's an, it's a social environment and there's many little nuances that they're not hard at all. Anybody can do it. Um, but if someone can show you in kind of slow mm -hmm. motion and teach you, uh, 
and you feel comfortable, isn't that like, such a great way to get into it? Right. And, mm-hmm. um, and so that was what those grade nines, again, every, every fall I go out with, with transit buses, put them on the bus and take them on a closed group orientation uh, for about 20 minutes. And I talk about, I talk about social equity and freedom and I talk about getting around and jobs and dual credit and cooperative education and getting to school and etiquette about, you know, eating and just making them laugh. I've done this presentation so many times. I, I, <laughs> I know my audience, right. I know what's going to, you know, what will make them laugh, um, what might make them think. I know their questions and sometimes you get really good questions. I had a student not too long ago asked if we could bring their hockey equipment on the bus. And and yeah, they can, you know, as long as it's covered up and it's not too busy. Um, mm-hmm. And lots of the routes, you know, depending if not peak time, you totally have the room for it, you know, and this is one more thing that could get them to something that they might be involved in and want to do. Or what about that first job that I always say, you know, you know, just, you know, when I was a boy, I got a job at a convenience store, though I loved it. Um, it was just on the road. It was the accessible part, right? But what happens if you're a basketball player and you live over by, you know, LCVI and you want to maybe get a job at Queen's Basketball Camp or, you know, the, it could just open up if you're a skateboarder and there's a skate shop in the mall or downtown, or maybe you want to be, a, you know, an actor uh, for for Fort Fright over at Fort Henry, right? Like, like these are things that can get them to different job opportunities too. Um, so I highlight all of that type of thing. It's only fair that, you know, um, somebody teaches them and that's kind of what I do. And then I think bringing it back to this whole conversation around sustainability, these are these are youth who then become adults who think of transit as a viable option instead of having a car. One hundred percent. Yeah. So I guess you did touch on this a little bit earlier, but why why does sustainability matter so much to you? You know, I uh, whenever I start presentations around sustainability, I kind of look at the Earth in the bubble, like you know, in nineteen sixty eight from the moon. And that was the first time, you know, that we got to see where we live um, mm-hmm. and how kind of fragile it is. If you kind of Google zoom out and you kind of see it's just a speck. Um, and I know it's, a, you know, the basic science I've learned in, you know, honestly, grade two, three and four and five, that dictate that shows us why we can't systemically pollute in a bubble. Right. Like there's nowhere for it to go. And with seven point six billion people, I always talk to students and say, listen, you know, it took all the time to get to one billion people. It took to 1804. And then 1927 was two, 1960, 74, 1987, 1999, and 2011 were another billion, 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 billion. We're like 7.5 or 6. And we're all humans and we all are mammals and we all depend on, on the system. And so I think more than ever, the urgency of time has, is mounting. Um, and I'm not worried about the earth. Like the earth will solve itself, right? I'm, I, wanted, I want somewhere where my children, where there won't be suffering. You know, uh, and unfortunately, everything that I'm feeling and seeing, there's a lot of hope, um, but there's there's an urgency, you know, put on top of us right now more than ever, uh, and we have to act. And I think, you know, what I'm doing with the bus thing is showing that it, it is it is it is an act. Like we're doing it. Like there's some really good things out there, um, mm-hmm. and not to forget about those good things, uh, because if someone has a child, like you know, we're at a time where it, th- their future is already going to be different than ours. Um, I mean, our future was different than our grandparents, right? So things change. Um, it's just, we're getting to a point that from everything I know is the system itself, though, as robust as it was, it's becoming very fragile and they're not always sexy, but there's a lot of good, pretty simple solutions, but we just, you know, and we have to do them. And I think for, for people to be able to see the numbers of what the actual impact is, I think makes a huge difference too, to be able to say, oh, my actions have made a difference. Well, exactly. And show that, you know, all our actions are just the sum total, right? Like, like that's all the bad we're in and 
you know, all the bad things you hear, all the plastic, it's just, it's no different than you using some of me. Right. And, mm-hmm. it, and then times that by 7.6 billion and time. Right. So things do add up, you know, and we are part of a very big system. Um, and it's sometimes it's very hard to, to think that we matter, but I also have kind of come to the realization that I matter, you know, I matter and you matter and we matter tremendously individually because all we are is a whole bunch of individuals. And so if we sort of switch gears and, uh, We've talked a lot about what you're doing with Limestone and with Transit. Um, let's talk a little bit about your role at St. Lawrence. Perfect. Um, so there's this innovation hub at St. Lawrence. Um, so what's your role within it? Well, so I was kind of tasked. I work under John Conrad. So he's the director of business engagement and innovation. And it's, you know, a nice space called the Innovation Hub. And I was tasked to help create the culture and the programming. Um, and we kind of went around, you know, a lot of innovation centers, innovation places in post-secondary institutions um, rely on the idea of entrepreneurship and kind of help with startup weeks and, and a lot of good things. But we kind of, we deviated a bit from that. We wanted to, you know, blur eyes a little bit. And what I mean by this is there's quite a bit uh, of research showing the future of the workforce. And it's saying that, you know, there's what's needed with uh, the rise in technology and artificial intelligence and machine learning and you know, there's still going to be a lot of spots for people, but the skills are going to be more people skills, right? So soft skills. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're, we kind of, our anchor kind of values for the innovation space, the innovation hub we're working with is collaboration, creativity, critical thinking, social impact, again, tying it to something with a purpose, some real life application uh, and reflection and reflection for more or less iteration. Um, because, you know, to, to, to do something well, sometimes it's, you have to reflect on it and, and make it better, right? Like adapt and, and change based upon circumstance. So those are the values we've created. Um, and then, again, it's not Dan standing there doing it all because that would not be efficient. I do some of it and I help run things, that whether it be innovation boot camps for students or community events or Awesome Kingston do a pitch party there or whatever, right? Things that tie into that value system. But it's about other people that may not have worked with each other or you know, seeing what they were doing is tying to innovation using the space. So I've, but what that means functionally for me was, you know, I had to set up the booking system, you know, the data management system, because we track everything, right? Like the branding, the social media, the, you know, the website that's being built right now, the students, I have eight student staff, you know? Um, so, and then driving some of those primary things that I'm responsible for, right? Some of the programs that we're creating, uh, as well as helping all the other groups and, and people that use the space that fall in line with that um, and help them succeed in what they're doing. And I know I've been in the space and it's it's awesome just to have a, a place that you know people are encouraged to come and talk and um, to let those ideas sort of percolate. For sure. All right. So as if all of this isn't enough, um, you also host a TV show. Is this correct? I do. I do. It's on your TV or that's kind of the not-for-profit of uh, Kojiko. Um, okay. I've been doing it for about 10 years now. So uh, the first seven years or so, a lot of it was handheld. I mean, I was I was not married at the time. I had more time. Um, so we'd be out in the community on site doing kind of interviews. Um, it was always community focused, right? Um, but for the past mm-hmm. three seasons, we've had I've had a show called Kingston Changemakers, um, and it's really just a it's kind of a talk show uh, that highlight what you know the good things happening in the Kingston community and how people get involved. That can be like like I had the Kingston or the Limestone 
uh, beekeepers guild on last show and you had people that had been beekeeping for you know dozens of years to new people but they have meetings they they share knowledge so it was like a subculture something i'd never seen before but... i did not even know we had a, a beekeeping guild oh, here. Yeah. yeah totally yeah there's and i got to like uh, kind of exposed, not exposed, but for me to to understand more about some really cool stuff that, you know, there's a lot of good things happen. That's, I really like focusing on that because mm-hmm. whether it be, you know, with at the college or the school board or that we, you know, we're so used to going to the negative because there's just so much uh, around us all the time. And so I'm trying to bring more exposure to all the good things, because if we do more good things, we'll have less bad things, I figure. So um, yeah, we have a show coming up. I'm filming on Monday next week. Um, and it's going to be Kathy Cleary, and she runs the Chikuto Women's Center in the Democratic Region, uh, Republic of the Congo. Uh, and this mm-hmm. is a, a center for women that are displaced by war and they, they need some training. And so she helps with uh, sewing and basket weaving and different skill sets that they can start driving, you know, making some money off for themselves. Uh, but also this year, a St. Lawrence College group that uh, some students that worked with a prof and they created a Shopify e-commerce platform for her. And they sold uh, both online and a pop-up uh, point of sale, these women's produced goods uh, to help make money, to help train more women. So like that's coming up. It's just neat to see these stories, you know, it's about a 23 minute talk show. And it must be so uplifting to see that these are just people in your own community. Like you talked about place um, and to know that, you know, these things are happening in your city. That's really awesome. hundred percent. You know, and that's why, mm-hmm. you know, I'm pretty positive. I'd say people see me and when they talk to me and, and usually, you know, it's cause you know, I'm filling my bucket with all this stuff locally. Right. And, mm-hmm. and it's important. You got to put the effort where, where it's needed. And, and it's important to know a lot of good people and know that there's a lot of good people you can kind of rely on and hang, you know, sometimes my jobs, uh, you know, I'm on contract uh, at some of my, at some of my positions in the past. And, what I've learned is though it can be stressful because of course I have a mortgage and a family, you know what, but you know, this precarious work is happening more and more in our generation. And, and, Mm -hmm. and you know what, like I kind of, even though some people, and I get it, I'd be very worried. I am half the time, but at the same time, I'm like, you know what, I've invested so much of my passion and time in this community. And I know so many people, um, my community would pick me up if I fell, I think. So that's kind of where it's not, it's just a side kind of a byproduct of just, doing these types of things. You just get to meet people and care about people in your community. Mm-hmm. Um, so last thing, if you could share one piece of advice or a life lesson, uh, what would it be? Just, you know, focus on the small um, to be able to complete things. You know, um, I'd said it to a student the other day about the idea of when I bike and I, I don't love biking. Um, I like, uh, I don't mind it, but um, I hate, <laughs> I hate hills. Okay. I'll tell you that going up them down's not bad. Um, but when you look at a hill and you stare at the top of the hill and you're biking up the hill, it's like, oh my God. And then all these things, can, should I get off? Should I turn around? Should I walk? You know, but if I just stare down at my tire, you know, and I just stare at the small tire and don't look up, eventually I'm at the top of the hill. Right. So mm-hmm. my point is, that I guess sometimes when I'm working with students or even for myself, or reminding myself and a bit of life advice is just to focus on the things that you can control. Um, try your best and focus small. Um, I, I never lose focus of the big i know i'm going up a hill so i'm working on all these projects i know i'm going up a hill it's conscious and the direction i'm going is also thought about because that's important but when you're in the weeds um you know it's important to kind of focus small and focus on why you're doing things i don't know i I don't know if i said much there but it's just something that i kind of i think about myself and to get these things done because it's important we do some good things um yeah. So focusing on the small steps, but never losing losing focus of the big thing. That's right. Yeah. That's that's. Yeah. You should have said that for me. <laughs> 
it's funny. Well, um, as you're talking about this biking, I'm thinking about um, when I, I used to bike um, to and from work when I lived a little bit closer, um, that hill on Centennial, it's a, it's not a huge grade, but it's long. And uh, just looking at my tires, that's what I would do. Well, exactly. <laughs> look at my tires yeah. and get to the top. Um, so Dan, how can people connect with you if they want to find out a little bit more? Um, yeah. So, uh, I, I have a website, uh, it's dhentry.com uh, or, uh, you can link LinkedIn with me or follow me on Twitter at sustainable Dan. Um, those are kind of what I'm mostly active on, but, uh, yeah, I mean, or reach out through you. I'm sure you can connect with me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for uh, taking time today to be on the podcast. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me.